This is Eric the Smoke Moran, and you're listening to Heroes 101. And if you're not listening, then you're a chump. So you need to listen in and become a hero on Hero 101. Yeah. Good evening. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that, that's, I couldn't resist turning out Eric the Smoke Moran there at the beginning. That's my, my favorite bumper we have. <laughs> Good evening. Welcome to Heroes 101 Radio. This is your one-stop shop for inspirational and motivational news. I'm the guy that they call Spectre from New York. Um, you know, I'm normally joined by my lovely co-host, uh, Rock and Roll from San Francisco, and our guy on the soundboards, Nightbug. However, there's some uh, crazy power cut happening in San Francisco right now, which has uh, knocked them out of action. So I'm hoping they're going to be joining us later on. But uh, we're uh, we're very fortunate in that we have a couple of guests on the line already tonight. So uh, I think, uh, you know, we... We're going to avoid some of the, the normal preamble and just dive into the uh, the main topic of conversation tonight. Um, but just before we do, um, in case you're wondering, uh, what the heck is this thing that I just dialed into? Who are these guys? Um, we are a group um, called the Hero Initiative Group. We're an international volunteer group who get involved in any kind of community activism that we see in our local areas that, that you know we feel uh, needs an extra helping hand. And that could be anything from feeding the homeless. It could be free self-defense defense seminars for at-risk communities. Um, there's a whole host of things. We do um, disaster preparedness. We get involved in community emergency response teams, missing kids. Um, again, anything anything where we see that uh, volunteering and putting in our time and effort will help our, our local communities and make the world a better place if we can, uh, little by little. So uh, we are loosely... Um, Loosely part of the what's referred to as the real-life superhero community, which you've probably seen popularized uh, on on media for better or worse. Um, we uh, don't typically refer to ourselves as superheroes, as that's a little bit, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. Um, and we also don't typically wander around wearing spandex, although uh, great if you fancy doing that and you're safe to do it as well. But uh, so that's who the New York, sorry, the uh, Hero Initiative group. Um, as I say, I'm here in New York. Rock and Roll will be online from San Francisco shortly. Uh, however, we are here to uh, to talk about, um, and, and I'm trying to avoid using terms like women's issues, because we're, we're here to talk about um, issues that impact women and uh, ways in which anyone can help. So it's, uh, it's certainly not women's issues. But uh, I'm lucky enough tonight to be joined by two people. One of them is a friend of mine locally, uh, Lisa Hofflick from the National Organization for Women. Good evening, Lisa. How are you doing? Hi there. Great. Thanks a lot for having us on, Spectre. No, <laughs> thank you for uh, joining and, and not revealing my secret identity. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, uh, um, we're also joined by uh, Dorchen Leidholt, who is the director of the Center for Batons. Sorry, if I could get my words out. Battered Women's Legal Services at Sanctuary for Families, so the Sanctuary for Families organization. Um, and good evening, Dorchen. Welcome. Yes, thank you so much. It's great to be part of this program. Great, thank you. So, um, you know, we've had uh, some some really cool guests. On. We, we actually had um, Chase Masterson on recently, and actually it was after, after I was at your house that, that evening, Lisa, so uh, I'm sure I mentioned it to death, but we had uh, Chase Masterson on, who was in Star Trek Deep Space Nine and is in a, a program, um, an anti-bullying program, um, that primarily was starting around the cosplay community, but has since branched out into a general anti-bullying program around... Um, 
at schools and, and, and particularly teaching people about um, different forms of bullying and how insidious that can be. And, um, you know, I kind of find it interesting that, that we're, you know, we're again talking about um, social issues and, and how they can manifest in, in much more uh, large and damaging ways. Um, but I guess, you know, before we dive into that topic, I just wondered if, um, first of all, Lisa, if you might talk to us for a second about what the uh, National Organization for Women is and, and the kind of things that you do there. Well, you know, um, now is a you know now is a multi-issue. It's a it's a multi-issue, multi-strategy organization that takes a, a holistic approach to women's rights. Um, you know, our priorities are winning economic equality and securing it with um, you know an amendment to the uh, U.S. Constitution, otherwise known as the ERA, um, that will guarantee equal rights for women. Um, we also, you know, have have um, uh, five other buckets that we um, that we um, um, devote our attention to, um, championing for uh, reproductive rights, uh, reproductive freedom, and other women's health issues. Um, uh, we uh, look at opposing um, racism and fighting for LGBTQ rights, um, and um, ending violence against women um, among a few, uh, you know, uh, the other buckets. But um, but again, you know, I want to stress the fact that we take a holistic approach to women and uh, to uh, approach to women's rights, and um, and uh, we are a multi-strategy um, organization where we will do anything from um, drawing attention to um, to um, to issues through protests and rallies, but also through advocacy and uh, legislation activism. Right, and and that's you know yeah I must say that that's um, I, I guess I, I I'm aware of other organisations who um, who take an approach that's solely one or the other you know and activism is great but unless I think unless you have that that political engine behind it how much are you really going to achieve in the real world and as you say it's uh, uh, you know a lot of it comes down to legislation at the end of the day if you really want to make a difference rather than uh, you know being a band aid over a gaping wound I guess um, yeah we but, uh, we, we yeah. Sure, we, we we take a we take a look we take a look at um, um, at policy from very from a grassroots level um, because um, through policy um, uh, much of um, um, things can be changed. You know, for instance, um, right. You know, for instance, for instance, we didn't, uh, you know, we didn't um, all buckle our seatbelts until um, until the law made it so that we had to buckle our seatbelts, right? And that really changed our way of thinking about things. I mean, that's 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 really dumbing it down to the basis level. But that's a, that's a good example that I'd like to to give to people about some of the things that um, that um, that advocacy um, around legislation will do. Right, and and I, I certainly I like the idea that. Um you know, good practices become as simple and as as natural as buckling a seatbelt. And as, as you say, you know, there was a time when nobody did it, and now, uh, you know, I, I don't know anybody who drives around without a seatbelt on. It's just second nature. So uh, maybe uh, maybe we can learn a, a new trick every now and again. Um, but I guess before we get into the specific issues um, underlying, I was wondering, uh, Dorchin, if you might be able to, uh, you know, talk to us a little bit about what the uh, the Sanctuary for Families program is and the kind of work that you do there. Absolutely, my pleasure. Um, Sanctuary for Families is the largest organization in New York State focused, um, dedicated to the issue of gender-based violence um, with, with a very big focus on domestic violence in particular, but also other forms of gender-based violence that might fall under the rubric of family violence. 
um, and some practices that some folks may not be familiar with. Um, uh, New York City is a very diverse place, and we're working very much in New York City, and we have people who come here from all over the world. So we also address what we call culturally specific forms of gender-based violence, and to name just a few of those, um, female genital mutilation, which is a problem, a, a form of violence that a number of our clients from West Africa have endured and whose daughters are at risk of um, forced and child marriage, violence, family violence around ideas, notions of honor, um, extended family violence, so a, a whole constellation of issues around family violence. Um, and we also are very much focused these days on the issue of human trafficking, especially sex trafficking. Um, Sanctuary for Families also takes a holistic approach, and we believe that if we can address the multiplicity of needs of victims of gender-based violence, we really can assist um, principally the women and children, some men and boys as well, but mostly women and children we serve. We can help them get safe, um, often um, exit abusive situations, um, so that's our philosophy, and how do we address the multiplicity of urgent needs that victims of gender-based violence have? Well, we, we focus initially on getting safe and being in a safe place. Um, we have shelter. We provide um, shelter to 200 um, women and children every single night. Um, we provide trauma-informed counseling. Um, people who have survived violence, and, and gender-based violence in particular, often suffer from trauma. Um, it can manifest as depression. It can manifest as post-traumatic stress disorder or a condition called traumatic bonding. But addressing the psychological needs of victims, helping victims become survivors, is very, very important to us at Sanctuary for Families. Um, my job, I say my day job, but it often turns into an evening job like tonight, is I'm director of the Center for Battered Women's Legal Services within Sanctuary for Families. And actually, I think we're probably the largest legal services program dedicated to the needs of victims of gender-based violence in the country, in the United States. Um, and victims often have an array of different kinds of legal needs, criminal, immigration, family law, housing, public benefits, um, even cases that arise under international treaties like the Hague Convention. Um, we take on all those kinds of cases. Um, and then finally, um, Lisa focused on the issue of economic empowerment, and that's very, very important to us at Sanctuary for Families. We understand that the only way we can help our um, the women, children, and sometimes men and boys we serve Stay safe is through economic empowerment, economic independence, if possible. And so we provide very serious training um, in um, career readiness, office operations, helping equip our clients with the skills they need to, um, to find and keep jobs that are economically sustainable for them and their children. So that's the work of Sanctuary. Um, we serve... Um, more than 11,000 people every single year. Um, we bring a lot of people into our work as volunteers. At any given time, we're working with about 500 lawyers in New York City. 
on our clients' legal cases. And then we do a lot of, we call them call it systems change advocacy. And, and really, our, through our work with our clients, we see problems and systems response to victims. And then we work to change those responses, improve those responses, often through legislative advocacy, public policy advocacy, but sometimes through impact litigation, you know, bringing cases that can affect the lives of many, many, many people in a positive way. Um, so that's my job at Sanctuary. I wear a couple of other hats. Many activists do. Um, I'm a founding board member of an organization called the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women that works against all forms of human trafficking and commercial sexual exploitation at a global level. And I chair the New York State Anti-Trafficking Coalition, a group of 140 organizations around New York State um, working to strengthen New York State's response to human trafficking. Forgive me, that was a very, very long answer. <laughs> no, no, I, I really appreciate that. And I must admit, I've, <laughs> I was jotting down as you were talking a whole host of, of questions that I wanted to follow up on. But I must admit, you know, the one the one that springs to mind more than anything else is you just mentioned human trafficking. And, and um, you know, I, I guess I'm, you know, I'm a husband, I'm a father, and, and I, you know, I'm aware of some of the, the issues around, um, I guess, both what I would refer to as casual sexism, um, right through to, to, I guess, some of the more, um, as you say, gender-based violence, gender-based bullying, and so on. Um, but, but human trafficking is something that, you know, I, I haven't heard of um, really to a great extent in the United States. So I, I was wondering, you know, maybe you could explain, um, you know, what it is, what, you know, why it's becoming a problem and, and why we need to do something about it. Yes, and it's so interesting because really Lisa and I joined forces around the issue of human trafficking. Um, so what we're seeing, the issue we're seeing, social justice advocates from many different arenas coming together and, and building a big tent movement to end human trafficking in, in our communities, in our state, in the world. Um, but it is a very, very real problem in the United States. People have the idea that it, 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 you know, human trafficking is a problem only in the global south and east, and it is very much a problem here. The numbers range from the State Department estimates that about 18,000 people are trafficked across international borders into the United States for purposes of um, um, sex trafficking or labor trafficking. Um, but there, what people, and that's very much a reality, and we provide assistance to many internationally trafficked women, principally, and some transgender women as well. Um, but there's a larger incidence of human trafficking in our own communities, and the victims are typically girls and women, and often LGBT homeless youth who have never lived in another country, who grew up in our communities, and their traffickers are often people in their own communities. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children estimates that 100,000 children in the United States are subjected to sex trafficking. Um, and I don't know any reliable estimates of the number of adults who are subjected to domestic sex trafficking but it's certainly numbers in the 
tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. So it is very much a problem here in the United States and in the so-called developing world. The problem is we really haven't addressed it until relatively recently. Wow. And and I must say, you know, the, those figures are absolutely staggering. Um, and, you know, I, I guess it, this kind of reminds me, you know, I was I did a business trip out to Vegas um, recently with a colleague of mine. And we as we were traveling out there, there was a magazine article um, almost making light of, of prostitution in Vegas and saying that, uh, you know, there's, there's such good money to be made there that, that some college kids go out there for a weekend and make a few grand and, you know, and, and we were saying that both of us were, were fathers, and, and, you know, we were saying as, as fathers there's nothing that worries us more than our kids kind of turning to that, you know, that type of life in, in order to uh, to earn a few dollars. But, you know, I, I mean, you know, talking about human trafficking is, is a whole different level to uh, to someone going for a weekend out to Vegas. Uh, absolutely. But, uh, I mean, the stereotype is that it's of the college girl earning a little bit of extra money for her education. And that does happen sometimes, but it's a tiny, tiny percentage of the industry. Most scholars estimate that about 1% of the industry, the global sex industry, is made up of people who really enter through their own volition. And, and sometimes people enter through their own volition, and then they become trafficked. Um, I actually don't even refer to the sex industry anymore. I call it the sex trafficking industry because it's very much founded on um, abuse of power um, and vulnerability. Um, and there are a number of push factors that propel vulnerable people um, into situations of trafficking. Certainly poverty is very a significant push factor. Um, discrimination, gender-based discrimination, um, is an enormous factor I, I could go on and on about situations. Um, natural disasters can create that kind of vulnerability, civil unrest. Um, what we see here in the United States, that one of the biggest push, push factors um, is a history of abuse in childhood, especially sexual abuse in childhood. So trafficking is really about um, predatory individuals preying on the most vulnerable among us. Right, right, absolutely, and and I mean, I, I guess you, you mentioned immigration, which you know you may be able to tell that I'm I'm an immigrant, I'm not a natural New Yorker. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I, I, you know, I, I guess having gone through that process myself, you know, my wife is on a H four visa, which means that she's not allowed to work mm -hmm. until we get green cards, which could be many years in the future. Um, I'm certainly aware that, as you say, that there's. Um, economic um, control, you know, I, I am the only breadwinner in the house, uh, my wife doesn't mm -hmm. even have the opportunity, even to do volunteer work can be difficult, um, and, and you know, I, I guess as well as um, the economic side of things, there's also the fact that you're almost marginalized as uh, as a dependent on someone else's visa mm -hmm. and, and not really allowed to live yes. your own life until that's through, so I, I can certainly appreciate that side of things. And, and you know, it's interesting, that is a that is a real issue and a real problem, not only in terms of trafficking, but also in terms of domestic violence. Um, as sanctuary for families, about 75% of our clients are immigrants. Um, and our immigrant clients come from all over the world. And something we see in so many cases is um, the spouse with immigration status 
abusing that status and using it as a tool of control, using it as a, a threat, um, and, um, and and using it often to keep the victim away from assistance from law enforcement, for example. So fortunately, there are immigration remedies available for victims in that situation. Um, one is called the Battered Spouse Waiver. Another is called the Violence Against Women Act Self-Petition. So for victims married to abusive spouses, we can help them. We can help them get independent. We can help them get on that path to permanent resident status and, and even citizenship eventually. But so often, immigrant um, victims aren't aware of their rights. So we, we do a great deal of outreach into um, immigrant communities to try to educate um, immigrants about their rights in these areas. Wow, okay. And and I guess, you know, it, it kind of jumped out at me as well. You mentioned the um, culturally specific abuse as well. And, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I guess to me it, it almost seems like a double whammy that you come in as a spouse of an immigrant and you're not allowed to work and you don't have your own uh, economic um, freedom. Um, but at the same time, you may be part of a culture where, you know, either I guess from the lesser end where women are marginalized and, and, and don't have as many rights as men, or right mm-hmm. through to, as you mentioned, you know, the extremes of genital mutilation as as you would see in Africa. And I mean, mm-hmm. th- that to me seems incredibly hard to, to combat. I mean, what do you do about that? Well, um, the, the good news is our clients are often here. I, I must say um, pretty much all of our clients from certain countries, some certain West African countries have been subjected to and survived FGM. Um, It's very, very prevalent in some countries. Uh, Guinea, for example, where it's actually illegal but widely practiced. Mali is another country. Um, We see very high levels in the Ivory Coast, actually in Egypt, very, very high levels of FGM. Um, So sadly, our clients have survived that, endured that horrific practice that has all kinds of long-term health consequences. Um, But what we can do here is we can protect their daughters. And, and, And abusers often threaten to send their victims back to the home country. And so um, that can be a basis for immigration relief for asylum, for example, um, if, if a victim is at risk, if she returns to her home country, her daughter will be cut, or if she's been fortunate enough to have spared that, been spared that practice, she is at risk. So we've assisted many victims from West Africa and Egypt with, um, with immigration cases. Asylum immediately comes to mind. Um, there's some other immigration remedies that have been helpful as well. And then just we do a lot of education in communities about the harm um, our clients are so amazing. Um, we have mentor programs. We have survivor leadership programs where our clients become ambassadors um, for our organization and, and for the rights of, of women and girls generally and begin to speak out in their communities about the harm of these practices. Um, we had this amazing event a few years ago, ago called the Day of Awe um, that where Many of our, our clients from Africa, um, all stands for African Women's Empowerment, really spoke out also about forced and child marriage in very, very powerful ways. And an interesting thing, uh, when, when that event happened, it actually happened in our city hall in New York City. It was broadcast back into their home country, 
And at first we were a little worried. What are people in Guinea or Mali or the Ivory Coast, um, Burkina Faso, going to be thinking about this, these messages? We're seeing their daughters up there speaking out about these widespread practices. And, you know, interestingly enough, the response was very, very positive in our clients' home countries. And it actually made us very, very hopeful about the possibility of affecting change, not only here, but uh, globally, where these practices take place pretty systematically. That, I mean, that that is absolutely incredible. I, yeah, yeah, that's uh, <clears throat> quite quite a staggering response then. Okay, and I guess the other the other thing that that just jumped out to me when you were when you were talking then was um, we, we do a lot of work around um, helping the homeless and, and uh, rock in San Francisco. You know, I, I think there's there's kind of a different dynamic between New York and San Francisco, and, and I think some of it's down to um, to the, the shelters and the quality of the shelters we have here in New York maybe being a bit better. I think that the weather sadly has a huge impact as well. The fact that you know you can sleep on the streets a bit longer out there than you can in New York when we get down to some crazy cold temperatures here in the winter. Um, but I, I guess the point I was trying to get to was that we have um, far far more families on the streets in, in San Francisco and, and Southern California than we do over here in New York. Um, but the the reason that a lot of them stayed out on the streets was because if you were going into a shelter, you would be split up and they would split men and women up. Um, and the stories of abuse that we heard from within the mm-hmm. shelters of the women and their, their children and their families, you know, while the husband was segregated somewhere else, were, were quite horrific. And I guess, you know, if you would prefer to sleep on the street rather than endure that, I can certainly uh, understand it. Um, yeah, I'm sure Lisa can speak to this as well, but we have an enormous homeless crisis in New York City, and it's really very, very visible. I, 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 we may be rivaling um, San Francisco at this point in time. Um, I think the conditions in our homeless shelters here are very problematic. Um, there is not enough space in domestic violence shelters, so often families we're serving end up in the homeless shelter system, and with with some exceptions, the conditions are pretty, pretty horrific. Um, domestic violence shelters are generally um, safer and more comfortable places for homeless people. Domestic violence is a major factor in precipitating homelessness. Um, but there's such a demand and need that it's very, very, you know, it's interesting tonight I um, assisted a client, a victim of very severe domestic violence, come into one of our shelters, Uh, a a young mother with three children, ages one, three, and five. She fled her abusive home, um, and she had been on a wait list for months, actually, and it was really getting increasingly dangerous for her. And only tonight were we able to get her in. Um, and fortunately, she ended up in, a, I think, a really good place where she's going to be able to begin to heal and her children will begin to heal. But um, there is a shortage of shelter space and a shortage of domestic violence shelter space in New York City. And, and uh, you know, we have a lot of gentrification happening and housing is more and more expensive. And there is inadequate housing for poor people in our city, um, including yeah, poor victims of gender-based violence. So it is a major, major social problem. I don't know if, 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 if 
and not only in New York City, I'm sure in Westchester as well, where where Lisa is um, living and working. I, I don't know, Lisa, if you'd like to, to to talk about the situation of homelessness there. Sure, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah sure. I mean, in Westchester, it's, it's the, the the effects are not as visible. But I mean, and Dorchin, you can back me up on this too. With with you know, with regard to to human trafficking victims, there are only a certain number of beds that are available. Uh, for trafficking victims, and one of the things about domestic violence shelters too is that by by state charter, they um, only allow women. Um, males above 15 are not allowed in into these. Um, I believe it's 15 into these domestic violence shelters. So now you've got, so now you've got the issue of the LGBTQ populations that are at risk and are victims of sexual exploitation and trafficking. They have nowhere to go, so they find themselves out on the street too. I mean, that's the, these are just some of the, the issues mm-hmm. that we're dealing with when we talk about about um, gosh about emergency housing for the the exploited. There are not enough beds. There are, there's not enough. Um, of property, real estate, in order to house them, and there isn't enough money in order to finance these. So we've got we've got a, a bunch of different issues that we need to to work on and deal with. Um, you know, and and we can go on and on about about um, of all the 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 rules and requirements requirements about emergency housing and who qualifies for it. Um, it but, but the point remains that in New York. There aren't enough beds to house, to comfortably house or adequately house the people who need them, who need these services the most. Right, and and you know, I'm kind of interested. Uh, I'm guessing by their nature that that these these specific uh, shelters for you know for women or or victims of of violence, um, they have to be to some degree secret and 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 secure is is that right i mean i'm just kind of wondering how do people yes, actually oh, find absolutely. them yes oh absolutely there there are standards of confidentiality our shelters all of our shelters are confidential um and um it's really important that that be the case um i'm very much on the same page as lisa about who comes into shelters um and they're unduly restrictive um victims with Older teenage boys are having trouble finding shelter. Um, much less um, men can be victims of domestic violence. Um, they, it may be same-sex domestic violence. They need safe shelter space. So um, we have just signed a petition really trying to change the regulations. So, the yes, shelters need to remain confidential, but... Um, we they're unduly restrictive, and we don't want to be in the position of discriminating. Um, you know, our clients have suffered tremendous discrimination, and we don't want to be perpetuating discrimination. And you know, I think sometimes we just need to be a little more flexible. Um, but you know, when we first began to serve victims of human trafficking, you know, mostly women um, who've been in prostitution. The initial response was, no, no, we can't bring those people into our shelters. Um, That isn't going to work. We have to have separate shelters for them. And we just said, well, wait a second, they're all victims of gender-based violence. And we began to bring trafficking victims into our shelters, and it worked. And, um, And so I think we need to continue the policy of extending a helping hand to 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 um underserved groups of um 
um, victims of different forms of gender-based violence, including um, members of our LGBT communities. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and and you know we we've I, I say we the, the Hero Initiative group within the New York region as well we've seen um, over over the last few years a, a real a real uptick in unfortunately in in hate crimes and violence mm-hmm. against uh, the the gay or, or or other other marginalized communities um, and and absolutely. You know, it, it, I, I guess the, the one thing that, that kind of brings me hope from that, though, is whenever I mean we, we we've had a couple of occasions. There was a, a, a young man who was who was unfortunately shot in the West Village a couple of years ago, um, and more recently in in Harlem there was a, a, a transgender woman who was actually beaten um, on the way home from a bar in the in the evening. And in both cases, we went out and we actually put flyers up of the CCTV footage of the the um, perpetrators and. Um, actually, just tried to raise the awareness of of the crime that had happened, and, and kind of raise the visibility. Um, and, and the actual response from the local community was staggering. Um, everybody that we spoke to was behind us, and, and really wanted to find the person who had done it and bring them to justice. And um, you know, I think as much as these are minority groups, they you know, I think they are still very well regarded in their local communities. Um, Yes, you know, it's funny, Lisa Lisa and I were talking about an incident that happened. Um, We were marching in a march called the Brides March, and it's a march that really started out in um, Latino communities and Latina communities in New York City after a bride was murdered on the eve of her wedding by an abuser um, she had rejected. And so it's become a, a, a tradition and on the, on the anniversary of her death, and um, it's really an amazing, amazing event. I digress. Um, but as we were marching and, in the Brides' March, and many of the women marched in, in wedding dresses, very powerful and moving, um, we were talking about an incident relatively recently that happened in the Upper East Side of New York City where a mother and daughter who were sitting in a restaurant having dinner were attacked by people in the restaurant because they were mistaken for a lesbian couple and and beaten brutally beaten i mean it's so horrifying um and but the the, the one thing that it just it made crystal clear to me is anybody can be the victim of homophobic violence <laughs> you know we all yeah. have a stake in ending it uh, a mother and daughter eating in a restaurant could be the targets of homophobic violence so you know, i think people are beginning to recognize that so this is really a problem for our society and we need to take up this cause um all of us regardless of our um our our sexual identity or sexual orientation and um i i think we're seeing that happen just as you saw it um in in the cases that you were involved in yeah i mean you know i mean i i will speak from a personal perspective also i mean i my i am a mother of a transgender woman and um and uh she's a college age woman and uh, i have to say that one of my chief concerns is her safety i worry about her safety every single day every single minute of the day um because um i have to wonder you know when she goes into the city when she rides on the bus or on the subway train is the person sitting next to her a potential murderer you know um and i it's very interesting though because i've i've thought about this long and hard because some of my talks to her um, fly in the face of everything that I think about from a cisgender perspective um, on feminism. 
because I tell my transgender daughter that she needs to wear more makeup. She needs to look more feminine. And, you know, and this is going back to to um to to gender stereotypes and whatnot. But um but for me, um as a feminist, part of me is really really um irked by this and um I cringe whenever I say this when I tell her to put on lipstick or to to put on blush but I'm looking at it from from a safety perspective if she looks more feminine is she going to be able to pass more you know so 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 I so so from speaking from a personal perspective I really hope that 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 we as a society can um change the way that um that um we deal and handle people who are different from us, but at at the same time, though, I here I am. I'm asking my child to conform to these gender stereotypes in order to keep her safe. Does that make sense? It, it absolutely, absolutely. does. And, and yes, I, I think there's a big difference between uh, our our ideals as a parent for what we want for our kids and and uh, the ideal world that we'd like them to live in. Sometimes, but uh, as sad as that is, you know, safety comes first at times. It's it's a it's a very interesting it's a very interesting world that we live in and, and it's interesting to see our own personal dichotomies as we as we try to adapt. Um, I, I guess that, that kind of uh, you know uh, the 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 main point that I uh, I was really intrigued about with this show is is the idea that that casual sexism can translate into some of these these much more uh, damaging and and and, and uh, concerning behaviors and and some of the gender based violence issues that we just spoke about and. Um, you know, I think there is a, and, and probably quite a decent view that that sexism is is on on the wane, and that you know people are they're, they're, there's some kind of moral zeitgeist, and people are moving in the right direction morally, and I, I think it's great that that's the case. Um, however, obviously there are still issues with with sexism in in various forms, but uh, um, you know I was kind of interested from both of you actually to to understand whether you thought that. Um, Casual sexism, uh, you know, could could contribute to these kind of issues, and 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 how we might go about uh, reducing some of those contributions if we can. Dorchin, do you want to go first, or should I? <laughs> um, you know, I'm I'm happy. To, I I you know, I sexism exists on a continuum. You know, and at one end, um, you know, misogynistic comments. <laughs> you know, even things that many people engage in. Sometimes people who are friends of mine, you know, the B word and the C word and the S word and all of that at one end. Um, and that really, the use of that language and the uh, um, perspective that it reflects involves not just stereotyping, which is pretty pernicious, but also dehumanization and um, turning people into less than human to objects. And and once people are viewed as less than human, um, it's, it's so much easier to commit egregious acts of violence against them. So I I see a direct connection between casual sexism and gender-based violence. And, and, and I see it in the cases that we handle. In fact, so often an abusive relationship starts out, well, as what appears to be a really good relationship and a loving relationship, and then casual sexism moves in. Um, casual sex, using gender-based slurs, um, casual sexism can take the form of power and control, 
or a, you know a kind of paternalism that may first seem to be protective, and then you realize, wow, it's really about control and domination, and then it begins to morph into something, a push, a slap, throwing a dinner plate down, constant criticism, and then choking, slapping, punching, sexual violence. So even in an individual case of abuse, that line from casual sexism to severe violence exists. So I think we need to be drawing that line when we talk about the problem. Um, and, And stepping away from sexism is the only way to do it. Uh, just like stepping away from racism, acknowledging it, you know, um, becoming aware. You know, one thing I that Lisa's doing in Westchester that I think is so wonderful is she's establishing consciousness raising groups. And that's all about that kind of awareness. Um, but, you know, I just wanted to say men, increasingly we're seeing men getting it. Um, getting involved in our movement. You know, when I point to to groups like Men Can Stop Rape or A Call to Men um, or Man Up, um, there's so many. There's amazing work that's happening on the part of men against gender-based discrimination and gender-based violence. And I think men will, obviously men who have daughters and sisters and mothers, many, many understand that that's their stake in change. But also men are themselves harmed in all kinds of ways by this pernicious phenomenon called sexism. <laughs> so, so we're seeing a, a big, big change happen, and, and men seeing that connection between, uh, among these, these interrelated phenomena, casual sexism, gender discrimination, gender-based violence. I couldn't agree with you more, Dorton, because I real I, because I've said, you know, ad nauseum. I really do not believe that we can have equal rights between the genders without a complete dialogue between the two, and um, and everything in between. Because you know, uh, you know, I no longer see gender as just binary anymore. We <laughs> need to be able to have a com- to have a dialogue and conversation with everyone involved in between. But you know, but I, you know, you know, when we talk about casual sexism, we're talking about these patriarchal gender norms that are basically so entrenched and so deep, deeply rooted that we don't even realize that they're there until someone points them out. You know, I was part of this uh, this, this discussion on uh, on on Facebook of all places about um, about uh, um, the Arizona Diamondbacks um, um, announcers about um, um, how they were mocking these sorority um, women who were taking selfies, and uh, and um, I had people saying, "Well, you know what? You know, I I don't think that's sexism at all." And uh, I wanted to point, I, and I was trying to point out, of course it's sexism. Do you think that they, that these announcers would have said the same thing about a bunch of men with their noses buried into their phones? Um, why did they feel that it was necessary to br- to point attention, to bring attention to these women um, incessantly about the ridiculousness of what of how they thought? W- um, the ridiculousness of them taking selfies. Well, is part of the patriarchal um, um, and paternalistic attitude that men had to point out that women were doing something wrong, you know, and that's part of casual sexism. Casual sexism is also part is also, let's say, someone in the office, um, you know. Um, 
uh, you know, during a meeting saying, you know what, young lady, you've got the right answer. You know, things as 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 small as that, or looking at at at, um, at a woman to bring coffee at, during a meeting, you know, just looking at her, or um, you know, any any small little thing adds to the overall um, idea and notion that that men are superior um, over women, and you know, but but again, the thing the thing is, we need to we need to have a dialogue. Again, we need to um, with 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 each other, and we need to say, "Listen, this isn't right," and I feel uncomfortable with this. And we and how can we go about and fix this? We can't, you know, casual sexism, as 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 Dorchin said, has huge big effects um, and ramifications, um, but they all start with the little things, and we need to be able to point them out. We need to realize right. what they are first. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I must say, um, I, 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 I notice more. I, I, you know, I don't know, <clears throat> I don't know whether it's a more recent thing since I've been in the United States, or whether, you know, whether the uh, the culture in the United States is slightly different from from the UK where I was from. But um, certainly, I know more and more people here these days. You know, males who are willing to speak up and say, actually. You know, I don't think that's right, and and that's something that you know. When I was growing up, you know, you'd never hear that. It was very much a pack mentality, and and people people shut up and stay out of the way if they, you know, if they want to fly under the radar. Yeah. So, uh, um, yeah, I think there's a sea change. I think there's a sea change. I think it's coming about, and I think, I you know, in casual sexism, by the way, can also take the form of, you know, boys don't cry. And, you know, shaming a boy for certain behavior, behavior that is stereotypically feminine. I mean, that's casual sexism, too. Um, Ted Bunch, who is one of the founders and co-executive directors of a great organization called A Call to Men, that you can find if you Google it, members of the audience, um, talks about something called the man box. And and it's really about all of the restrictions and in some ways almost a loss of freedom that men endure when they have to step in them into the man box and stay in the man box. And it, it starts when they're little boys. So men have a huge stake in ending gender inequality and gender violence. And men, of course, are victimized by gender violence as well. I mean, it's, you know, even outside of the context of prisons, we see men being victimized horrifically by gender-based violence um, on campuses. Um, One of our more recent projects at Sanctuary for Families is we're representing victims of campus sexual assault. Um, We've been hired by a university to do this work, and so we're representing the victims. Well, lo and behold, some of those victims are men. Um, So so this movement offers much to men as well, and I think that's one of the reasons that we're seeing, I think men are recognizing that and realizing that they they, they have a stake in, in, in this as well. Yeah, and you know, there, there was a, a very famous movement in the UK probably 10 years ago uh, called Fathers for Justice that was kind of along the same the same lines, um, and, and it was all around the fact that, that 
I, I guess um, within the popular media, men were being marginalized more and more and actually shown as being, you know, it started off with, you know, men are such, such terrible drivers through to men can't mm-hmm. read maps and, and, you know, these kind of little undermining things to the point where um, there were a number of uh, commercials on TV which were really uh, putting men down as being, uh, you know, inferior to women in terms of raising children, and and it became a whole snowballing thing. And and, and a group of men did stand up and say, you know, we're we're being uh, victims of sexism ourselves now, and and you know, you've just created another problem when you were trying to solve one initially. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think uh, for me, it, it certainly sounds great that there is. <clears throat> There's more awareness of this, and, and you know, I, I certainly find in, in my in my demographic out there that uh, you know people use less sexist slurs and are more aware of what they what they're saying and what they're doing. Um, however, you know, I, I guess my concern is that people then get complacent and, and feel that there's no longer a problem. Yeah. And, and I I I think you're right. Um, and sometimes I feel that we're making so much progress, and then something happens. <laughs> and I think well, just we're we're not really seeing the underbelly of the problem, and certainly on the issue of trafficking. Um, and you know, trafficking isn't just about the traffickers and the pimps; they're not the only problem in this um, horrific form of abuse. Um, they're also the buyers, and um, we've been uh, the New York State anti trafficking coalition of which Lisa is a part, we're also doing a lot of thinking about the role of demand. And that's when we begin to think about buyers as perpetrators, then we're really looking out at a larger group, a larger group, um, candidly, of almost exclusively men who are creating the economic engine of this problem and um, I'm sure many do not see it as harmful, and they buy the um, stereotype of the empowered sex worker um, but are really contributing to a global industry, fueling, driving a global industry that is um, horrifically exploiting the most marginalized and vulnerable among us. So um, we, we have a long way to go. <laughs> And just, in, I mean, out of interest uh, from your experience there, I mean, do, do you feel that um, if prostitution were to be legalized, for example, and there were more checks and balances around it, that, that uh, you know, there would be less victims? Or do you think that would just drive, you know, ever more economic fuel to that fire? Yeah, you know, it's a really good question. And we've had a chance to really look at what's happening globally. And in fact, there are jurisdictions, there are countries that have legalized prostitution, there are counties in, in New York State, excuse me, in, in the United States that have legalized prostitution. And so we've studied what's happened in those areas. And what we've seen, um, you know, very often legalization is well-intended. The hope is that if we can regulate an industry, if the government can regulate an industry, it will um, get, get rid of organized crime, um, it will protect the health of people in prostitution. But the reality has been something very, very different. And what, in fact, we've seen, I mean, it, to look at especially Germany and the Netherlands, but also other countries like New Zealand, um, legalizing prostitution 
turns pimps into legitimate business people and um, makes brothels legitimate businesses and makes it a lot easier for traffickers to do business. Um, it doesn't get rid of organized crime at all, it turns out. It actually brings organized crime in. When prostitution is legalized, the incidence of trafficking increases. The incidence of prostitution generally increases. And typically countries that legalize prostitution become sex tour destinations and the demand increases. And so what happens when the demand increases? Well, they have to find women and children to satisfy that demand. And where, where do they come from? Um, in the Netherlands, the vast, vast majority of people in prostitution, which is legal, come from the global south. Most with clear indicia of trafficking. In Germany, it's pimps from Eastern Europe bringing in girls from very, very poor Eastern Bloc countries, um, uh, Moldova, for example, Belarus. Um, so legalization is really not the solution. Um, and, you know, but we've looked at some countries actually in the global north that are doing some amazing work. Um, in Sweden and in Norway, um, they have pioneered a model that they call the Nordic model, and it really is about, in, in those countries, nobody has ever been arrested for prostitution. Um, but they look, look at prostitution pretty much as, as very often a manifestation of gender-based violence. And they not only go after pimps and other traffickers um, and organized crime generally, but they really deter demand they do it by directing low-level criminal sanctions against sex buyers, and they conduct intensive education throughout the country about the harm of sex buying. And it's had a big, big impact. Um, in Sweden, Norway, Iceland now has followed suit. Attitudes have changed radically on the part of men and young people generally. And um, they, yeah, men and young people view sex buying is as harmful and as a manifestation of sexism and is often a form of gender-based violence. So um, many of us working on this issue think we look north when we <laughs> think about solutions and we think the Nordic model is the way to go. Canada recently passed a version of the Nordic model. New York State in, has re embraced certain parts of the Nordic model. Um, the Philippines, South Korea... So I, I think there is hope, but the, the, the moral of the story is we have to look at demand when we're thinking about trafficking, um, whether it is consumption of, of cheap goods made under horrific working conditions in the case of labor trafficking or in the case of sex trafficking, the demand for prostitution. You know, and uh, you know, and uh, Dort, which Dorchen is not mentioning, that uh, she had a, such an instrumental part in, in uh, because she helped co-author um, um, a legislation that passed both houses of the New York State Legislature this year. Um, it's the Trafficking Victims Protection and Justice Act. It specifically looks at, at increasing the penalties um, 
um, against the buyers, and it looks at at those people who buy sex from children as 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 child abusers, as they are, they're they're child rapists, and it, and it levies um, penalties against them that are are equal to statutory rape, because that's really what they're doing. You know, it's it's very interesting. Prior to um, prior to um, to the passage of this bill, and it has yet to be signed by Governor Cuomo into law in New York State. You know, if you were to if you if you were a forty year old man and I. Uh, and that uh, you had sex with an 11-year-old child, you would be hit with so many, um, uh, with, with so many um, charges um, of endangering the welfare of a minor and having sex with a, ch- um, a child and, and whatnot. But if you were statutory to give that, rape, yeah, statutory rape, exactly. But if you were to give that same 11-year-old a $20 bill, then it, it um, correct me if I'm wrong, was it a Class A misdemeanor? Um, yeah, significantly lesser penalty, and you had the defense. Um, if you purchase the body of a child, I didn't know the age of that child. No such defense exists in the case of statutory rape. So really, New York State was conferring a lesser degree of protection on commercially sexually exploited children um, and giving many, many buyers a pass, certainly a significantly reduced criminal penalty. So so our new um, bill, which we'll, we hope Governor Cuomo will sign it into law, will change that. And Dorchin, how many other states? You know, this is my question. How many other states? Again, I forget the number. Have um, have laws like this? Are we are we singular at this point? Yeah, there there are other states that have laws that that don't protect commercially sexually exploited children the way they protect other children. I'm afraid I couldn't give you the names of those states, but um, you know, this is really part of a national movement. Um, and you know another and uh, and looking at the national level, Congress recently passed really important legislation that we advocated for called the Justice for Victims of Trafficking Act, and that bill, well now it's law, thank goodness, states very very clearly that um, that people, it's usually men who buy sex from children, really should be considered as part of the trafficking chain. They should be. They're, they're really part of the trafficking chain. They're functioning like traffickers and should face similar penalties. So I think we're really seeing a whole new level of consciousness and new kinds of legislation focused on the buyers of children for purposes of prostitution, not only statewide but, but federally as well. You know, and what, what, one of the things that, really, that we really need to do is we need to shift the paradigm of thinking that the people who are being prostituted are um, that the majority of them are victims that, that they are not necessar- that they are not there of their own volition. We discussed this at the beginning of the show. It's a very small percentage that that are there. We need to start thinking of people um, um, for what they really are. They are sexually exploited. Um, victims that come from a, from a, from many times um, more vulnerable um, demographics, um, from from lower socioeconomic um, um, populations. They come. They are most mostly women and, and girls um, who, um, by virtue of their gender, uh, they. Um, they are treated differently and inequitably um, in relation to men and boys in most contexts uh, because of their gender. I'm sorry. Um, so we need we need to look at these 
um, at people who are being prostituted not as sex workers. And I really hate that term, sex work, too, because it actually gives um, makes people think that there is a legitimate business behind it, that there is a legitimate choice. When, when in reality, what these people lack most is the fact that they have a choice. No one goes no one grows up and says, well, I want to go into prostitution when I grow up. No, no one, no one thinks that. They, most people, if, even if they enter into it from their own volition, they have no other choice but to do that, right? So we have to look at these, that, at, at these um, populations as, um, as, again, what they really are, victims who lack a choice. Yeah, it's right. interesting. We we spend a lot of time thinking about language, and language is so important in shaping values and in establishing and perpetuating social norms. And one of the, I want to get rid of the word prostitute. I hate the word prostitute. Me too. <laughs> because because nobody it, it reduces a human being to a condition of oppression. And one of the things our new law does is it actually eliminates the word prostitute from the New York State Penal Code. And it's funny because the only time in the, in our penal code that a defendant is equated with the crime that he or she allegedly committed is in the case of prostitution. So you see the word prostitute over and over again in the penal code. Well, no longer once our governor signs our new law into effect. But you don't see people referred to, other defendants referred to as burglars or robbers or murderers. But you see that gender stereotypical, stigmatizing word used over and over again. Um, I, you know, and sex worker, sex work is very, very similar. I, it, it, it renders harm invisible. Um, when you turn exploitation into work, and very often violence into work, you don't see the harm. You know, the term sex work actually comes from the sex industry itself, um, and but it ended up being embraced ultimately by some countries, actually countries that ended up legalizing prostitution. So um, I, I think those two words need to be rejected by progressive people who are committed to social justice. Um, they don't have any place in our vocabulary. Right. Yep. And I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I just wanted to throw in, actually, you know, normally we have a very active chat room through these shows, and not only has my co-host been <laughs> disrupted by uh, power cuts, but also the chat room was down through most of the show. However, um, one of our guests in the chat room tonight, actually, uh, who's a, a podcast geek pile, creative pop culture podcast, um, mentioned that there's, there's actually a group known as the Wayne Foundation, uh, which is run by Kevin Smith, the, the, the director who grew up in New Jersey, um, but also a lady no, uh, called uh, Jamie Walton, who was actually uh, trafficked throughout uh, all of her childhood and all of her, her 20s, um, which is a, another another organization that aims to provide uh, safe places for mm. people to escape to when they're victims of abuse. So uh, just a, an interesting, uh, interesting tidbit from the chat room. Yes. Um, so I, I had one more question, and apologies, you know, we've we've gone over our hour, but <laughs> one last question from me. Uh, it, it seems to be very prevalent that that um, the victims of trafficking are also victims of of drug drug addiction as well. And uh, you know, from what I've heard through my own limited circle of, of knowledge, um, 
it's a very common practice for um, the victims to be essentially introduced to to more and more addictive and, and expensive and, and uh, um, debilitating drugs as a method of control. I, d I just wondered if that was something that you'd also seen in the New York region. Yes and no. Um, we don't see it that often in the cases of many of our international traffic victims. Um, interestingly enough, um, and most uh, we're, we serve a large number of trafficking victims from um, Latin America and from Asia, especially China. And we see substance abuse much more frequently in our domestic sex trafficking victims and survivors. And in many, many instances, um, it is the pimps that get them addicted to drugs it's often a way of obtaining their submission and controlling them. Um, and, and, and for victims, substance abuse is self-medication. Um, it's, you know, serving, in, in so many of the cases we have, they're serving 10, 15, 20 buyers a night, um, 30, if there's a big game happening. Um, and it's a way victims can numb themselves to the trauma to try to get through a horrific experience. So, so we do see substance abuse in, a, in, a, in some cases, um, mostly among our domestic sex trafficking victims, um, but also I've had a number of cases where victims are so traumatized after they've escaped that they've turned to um, illegal substances or to an excessive use of alcohol just in order to numb the pain and numb the feelings. And that is a significant problem, and, and, and we're working with a number of clients in that situation. Dorchin, haven't you, you know, I, I heard something very interesting recently. Isn't food a, a more um, used as a more controlling factor? Um, yeah, with, well, with that's a very interesting thing. Traffickers complain completely control their victims' use of food. Um, you know, they're often kind of starved um, in order to be very, very thin because buyers often like them. They like them young. They like them compliant. They like them exotic other. Um, and they often like them thin. I mean, it's really a prescription for trafficking. But what we see is once our clients get free of their exploiters, they don't know how to begin to address food. Um, sometimes they gain an amount of weight because they've just had no control over the ingestion of food. So we have special programs around nutrition. We had an amazing program, which we call a nutrition workshop, where we brought in chefs who worked with our clients to help them learn how to cook healthy food. Not, you know, they had been had had diets of exclusively fast food and, and, until they got away from their exploiters um, to prepare food for their children. Um, and it, they, it, it was a great way. It was very, very therapeutic on so many levels because um, it was a way that our trafficking survivor clients could come together and not have to address trafficking at all, which can be very triggering and, and re-traumatizing. Um, and, you know, it was amazing at the end of the workshop, which spanned a few months, um, 
you know, the women spoke publicly about their experiences in the workshop, the nutrition workshop, and everybody got a really nice set of high-end um, cooking equipment at the at the conclusion. But um, food can be a tool of power and control as well, interestingly enough. And that's something that people don't think about. I mean, I certainly did not think about that until I heard it, and I understand, yes, you're right, you can... I mean, a pimp can a pimp can withhold food if they don't meet their quota, too, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Wow. Wow. Okay. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I realize we've gone way over on time. I guess I had the very last point that I was, you know, wondering if you'd if you'd both uh, care to make was first of all, how can how can people help, and and you know, how can people get involved and volunteer, um, and also possibly more importantly, as I think you were mentioning earlier, Lisa. Um, how are these organizations funded, and is there anything that people can do to help from a financial point of view as well? Well, I think that, um, well, first of all, one of the things we need to do is we need to empower potential victims. I mean, we need to, re- you know, we need to recognize who might be a victim. You know, what 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 are the risk factors for being a victim? You know, um, um, uh, people from um, from um, from more vulnerable um, economic um, positions, um, um, particularly, uh, um, I, I'm blanking on on the other risk factors. Um, the Dorsch can help um, fill in also, but, but trying to, but but looking at it from a, from a gender perspective, teaching teaching women and girls um, value, self value, self worth, um, and uh, and basically. You know, basic human rights. I mean, and also teaching and teaching boys from a young age um, that they are not entitled to 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 a woman's body. They they are you know teaching gender equality from a young age. We need to to try to get them before they even let's say even reach high school. Let's let's look at them from the elementary school level. It's a very unpopular um, 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 thought, I know, because if we can't if you know, particularly from an educational standpoint, if we can't even teach sex ed in school, then what makes you think that we can start teaching these things in schools necessarily in most instances? But as parents, we can try to to um, teach our kids that um, that that everyone res- um, deserves um, universal human rights um, and respect. Um, that's one of the first things that uh, that we should try to do. I'm a mother of uh, four boys, um, and um, in addition to my transgender girl, and um, and 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 um, I'm teaching them all to be feminists, regardless of their gender, right? Um, that's great. Right, but um, but but with regard to um, you know from from a, from an economic standpoint, you know you know there isn't enough money to. We don't have enough money in order to um, to create the um, the remedies that we really need. Um, today, uh, 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 Senator Gillibrand and uh, Senator Schumer, I believe, they, they just announced was two million dollars towards um, to organizations in New York City um, to uh, to help combat um, human trafficking. Well, that's a great start, but that was only through effective advocacy and um, and um, and activism. We need to 
we need to, as a society, put on those hats, too. It's great that we talk about things amongst ourselves on social media, but we also need to go out of our out of our box and um, contact our our uh, lawmakers and say this is some this is important to us. Let's let's try to find a way to to um, to make these realities and to make these remedies happen financially. Everything goes back to the money. And uh, do I have an easy answer to this? No, I'm kind of rambling at this point. But it's um, you know we we really need to think as a society about about what's right and and raise our voices to it. Yes, and I just just briefly um, be, become aware and educate those around you. There's so many ways to do that. Don't tolerate casual sexism in any of its forms. Um, and then think about really getting involved. There is so much activism happening. There's so much movement building um, in pretty much every community. Um, I I know that you have pretty wide reach through your podcast, So I, and I don't know where all of your viewers are, but in every state of the nation, there's work happening on this issue, and if there's not, you can start it. Um, and we're building a really big tent movement. Um, there's a big faith-based component. So through your church or synagogue or temple or mosque, there's a great opportunity to spread the word and bring others into this work. Um, using social media to educate others. There's so much out there. I, I just want to give a plug for a great, great online comic book that's a fabulous way to educate kids about the issue. Yeah. Um, it's called Abolitionista! Um, exclamation point, And it's a wonderful way to educate um, middle school kids, teenagers about the harm of trafficking. Um, and everyone, click on New York's New Abolitionist. It's an educational website that lifts up leadership in New York State to end trafficking and, um, and reminds us that our predecessors did extraordinary work to end race-based slavery in our country, but slavery continues, and we need to step up to the plate the, the way they did. And, and you can um, access that through www.NewYorksNewAbolitionistNoApostrophe.com. Um, so there are many, many, many ways to get involved. But just be conscious and be aware of what you see around you. Um, I had a, 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 an incident that happened actually a number of years ago before I was really involved in this work where I saw a man beating a woman in front of my apartment building. I walked into my building and I reached out my hand and, and the victim took my hand and I brought her in. I mean, that happens in our midst. I learned that she was a victim of sex trafficking. Her batterer was her pimp. But there are many, many opportunities um, when you're in hotels, um, when you're in shopping malls, when you're in um, transportation um, depots, bus depots. Um, look for the telltale signs, the vulnerability. Um, you may see exploitation happening in your midst. And then we say don't be a bystander, be an upstander. Reach out to the victim, notify law enforcement. There's a lot we can do to to stop trafficking in our midst. And this goes with labor trafficking also. 
I mean, not just you know, not just sex trafficking too. I mean, in New York City, you know, they um, um, they just passed, um, or in New York State, they just passed um, the law on, on on nail salons, for instance. And there is a, this there, there's a um, a nail salon workers' bill of rights, and there are um, there are warning signs for for who might um, be a, a victim. Or an exploited person, and these are basically the same warning signs for for anyone who's um, exploited. You look look for, you know, um, you know, look for someone who isn't talking, who look or 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 can't make eye contact, and mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, you keep an eye out for this. As 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 Torchin said, be an upstander. Reach out to these people. Stick your hand out and 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 try to help people out. That's one of the ways ways that we can that we can help. Yeah. Right, and and you know I I, I, I certainly identify with that. My my uh, my youngest daughter has just gone into fifth grade, but in in fourth grade there was a a nationwide program that she was involved with um, called the One, and the idea was that you should always be the person who stands up and and does something when they see a problem rather than you know avoiding it. And and they acted out a number of scenarios and talked about uh, bullying and um, and and I, I guess bullying in in a number of pervasive forms as well and uh, you know to me that kind of emotional intelligence and teaching that to children mm-hmm. of, of 8 or 9 years old is is really the way forward you know with without yeah. that um I, yeah you know, I must say as well, I, and I, I've been kind of saving this to the end, but one of my, my heroes growing up and, and still now is, is Patrick Stewart, the actor from Star Trek and, and everything else. And, uh, um, you know, he, he's a huge spokesperson for the, the um, organization Shelter in the UK, which provides, um, I guess, more focus on domestic violence, but very much along the same lines of providing safe shelters for, for particularly women of, of abuse. Um, and, and he had this, this famous quote that I'm sure everyone's seen the video, but I, I just kind of had to, to draw back to that. As He said, uh, the, as a child, he heard in his home doctors and ambulance men say, uh, Mrs. Stewart, you must have done something to provoke him. Mrs. Stewart, it takes more than, it takes two to make an argument. Wrong, wrong. My mother did nothing to provoke that. And even if she had, violence is never, ever a choice mm-hmm. that a man should make, mm-hmm. ever. And, you know, to me, that, that says it more eloquently than I ever could. And, and it's so powerful, um, and that someone with the credibility <laughs> um, and respect that Patrick Stewart has garnered is speaking out. I mean, it gives me tremendous, tremendous hope, and there are others as well. Um, so lots of people with a lot of name recognition have become part of the solution, and, and, and it's, 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 it's so great. Absolutely. Well, you know, I, so I, I really, really appreciate you both coming on. You know, I, I probably had a hundred other questions to ask both of you, and, and we got no time to do any of it. But uh, the, the conversation we have had, I, I found extremely enlightening and very, very interesting. And, and as you say, uh, it gives me hope for the future as well, because uh, you know, we, we do see some grim things out there on the streets from time to time. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's good to know that other people um, from both a, an institutional and also a, a personal point of view are, are doing something to help there as well. So, uh, um, was there anything either of you wanted to kind of plug any events you've got coming up before we before we end the show that uh, you wanted to, to just throw out there for our listeners? Yeah, I, I've done a bit of plugging already. I'm afraid <laughs> um, directing listeners to um, some of the uh, you know online websites and educational tools. 
Um, a lot is happening. We're waiting for our governor to sign uh, the Trafficking Victims Protection and Justice Act into law, and we're hoping that will be a big event and there will be a bit of media fanfare. Um, we shall see. Um, this week we have a big event in New York State. Our chief judge is holding a a summit, a chief judge's summit on trafficking that's bringing chief judges from all over the country to um, really look at the problem and to try to make our courts part of the solution. Actually, law enforcement has, a, has been part of the problem, alas, in re-victimizing victims through arrest and prosecution. Um, so, so that's happening. Um, Lisa, anything, anything you want to point to? Well, you know, we we, brief, we briefly um, touched on uh, campus sexual assault. Um, tomorrow I'll be at uh, Sarah Lawrence College. Um, there, There's going to be a, a campus sexual assault lecture at Sarah Lawrence College in Bronxville um, in the Donnelly Theater, um, in the Heibel Donnelly Theater. And basically um, uh, the... Um, the the topic of uh, the lecture is going to be uh, why do we need affirmative consent and that's based on the governor's um, uh, new law that he signed on um, on strengthening um, strengthening uh, the law against uh, sexual assault that happens um, on college campuses and uh, one of them in uh, one of those measures includes um, instituting an affirmative consent where yes means yes instead of just no means no. Um, then uh, we didn't really get into this before, but in Westchester we were having something. Um, let's see. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, you know, there's going to be the the UN gift box coming up um, soon, and I forget the dates. Do you do you know the the dates of that, Dorton? Uh, the UN gift um, box. It's is starting in in mid October, and I, the UN gift box has has been in England and and traveled around the world, but it's just this. It's a great way to educate the public about human trafficking, and it's going to be in, in Penn Station, Port Authority, Port Authority, which is really quite um, a locus for trafficking. So that's really amazing um, that, that that's going to be happening imminently. So. Right, and I'm actually volunteering for that. Um, so so that's so that's so that's coming up um, soon too, and then. Um, and uh, uh, just another thing um, to plug um, that we did not get into, and maybe that's a that's a, a topic for another conversation, um, Specter, um, is uh, raising the age of criminal responsibility in New York. Um, it, it, for those, that's a um, whole separate podcast. I think that's a whole very, separate. Very that's a whole separate podcast. But very, very briefly, just so that uh, your listeners know, New York State and, New- and North Carolina are the only two states in the country where the age of criminal responsibility rests at 16, not 18. And so this lecture is coming up at the Pace Law School in White Plains on on October 15th at 6 p.m. and we'll be t- discussing the way that criminal that children are being um, treated within the criminal justice system in New York. So those are the things that I wanted wow. to plug. In addition to Westchester oh, Now um, um, yeah. uh, meetings, we'll be doing a consciousness raising um, um, uh, a s- series um, dates to be announced. Um, but uh, these are these are series um, and meetings where we will be discussing um, very intimately um, issues that um, arise out of um, gender. That's 
fantastic. And I was going to say, you know, we will be uh, releasing these shows as an archive um, on Blog Talk Radio and also on iTunes tomorrow. So when we do that, we'll uh, we'll include all of the links and, and the URLs for the various uh, the various things that we've talked about tonight, including those events and and uh, how to join the organisations as well and some uh, some useful information there, so people can uh, can reach out if they are interested in getting involved. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank, thank, thank you, you so very, much. Very, very it's much been for a coming really, on. Really, really great yeah, conversation. Really Absolutely, and you know, maybe we'll, uh, maybe if uh, if you're available in in a, a couple of months' time, we could uh, have a recap and see how things have gone, and and then, as you say, there there are certainly other topics to focus on that we haven't had time to talk about tonight. Sounds great. Sounds wonderful. Thank you so much, Sucker. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much as well. So uh, just to, to wrap up this show, um, and I'll, I'll let you both go now, but just to uh, for our listeners, I know one thing that we haven't talked about uh, in a little while is the fact that we have a, a huge Warrior Dash event coming up in Tennessee this Saturday that uh, myself and Rock and Nightbug and a whole bunch of other people led by uh, Misfits, who we've had on the show many times before, um, will be competing in for the St. Jude's Children's Hospital. So uh, we've actually um, just today we've just raised over $20,000 in total across the team for the St. Jude's uh, Cancer Research Children's Hospital, which is awesome, and uh, hoping to reach more than that uh, by by Saturday when we actually do the race. So there's a number of things going on, but we'll be posting the uh, links to the sponsorship. If, if anyone wants to uh, add, any, uh, add a few last-minute dollars onto there to keep us going, that would be uh, much appreciated as well. So... We will be back next week, probably uh, still picking mud out of our hair and uh, <laughs> trying to get clean after the Warrior Dash. Um, but we will see you then. Thanks for listening, everyone. Simon.